Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The most vilified among us are where the defense bar needs to shine. I mean, it's very easy to represent someone who's popular and smart and funny and gregarious. It's very easy to do that. That's Ben Bratton. He's one of the country's most prominent defense lawyers. He's currently representing Harvey Weinstein. I speak with him about the clients he won't take on, why everyone deserves a good lawyer, and what it's like to represent someone who everyone hates. But first, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. My name is Kate, and um, I'm calling from Vermont. If Congress gets a report from Mueller and decides to ignore it, which from what I understand they legally can, what would be your thoughts? Thanks, Preet. P.S. Can't wait to read your book. Thanks, Kate. You know, when people say things like they're looking forward to reading my book, that really stresses me out, like a lot, because it's not yet written. But thank you. So your question about what happens if Congress ignores a Mueller report, I guess it depends on what's in the Mueller report. If the Mueller report is written and given to Congress, and it's chock full of allegations about the ways in which the president and his associates obstructed justice and conspired to violate campaign finance laws in connection with collusion with Russia, and it's demonstrable and strong, and Congress ignores it, well, that would be very terrible. But it's up to Congress, and I think we don't need to you know, cross that bridge until we get to it. First, let's see what Mueller comes up with. It's not clear to me that the report would be made public. I believe that would be up to the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, in the first instance, and then up to Congress. That said, I find it, just as a political matter, an impossibility that a report with such stakes would not become public, at least in some form. Hi, Preet. This is Suzanne calling from Massachusetts. I have a longstanding question about Jefferson Sessions. Um, he has testified before Congress several times now, and he's been asked the same questions and refused to answer them on the grounds that the president might invoke executive privilege. It's been over a year since the first time he did this, yet he has still not answered the questions that have been posed to him. Why can't the co-chair of whatever committee he's in front of say, um, this is a contempt of Congress. Sergeant at Arms, please take the Attorney General into custody until such time as he answers the question or the President of the United States asserts privilege. Why not call out contempt of Congress when it happens? Thanks. Well, Suzanne, I kind of like the way you think. Uh, very aggressive. 
look, what's interesting about how executive privilege works in Congress, and I think we've talked about this before, is that there's a sort of dance that witnesses do with the members of Congress who are asking questions, who are trying to get to the bottom of something. And since there's no judge and there's no arbiter in a fight, at least as an initial matter, between a member of Congress uh, or the Congress as a whole and a witness who chooses to be evasive or decides to be on the cusp of invoking privilege without actually invoking it, which is a clever maneuver, there's not a lot that people can do about it unless the chair decides to make a point of it and decides to take it to a court, which is extremely rare, extremely difficult. It gets caught up in a lot of you know legal wrangling. Um, you mentioned, why doesn't the co-chair do something? There's no such thing as a co-chair of any committee. There's a party who's in control. At the moment, it happens to be the Republican Party. And the chair of the Judiciary Committee is Senator Grassley. And he doesn't have a co-chair. He has a ranking member, who at the moment is Dianne Feinstein, who doesn't have gavel authority, doesn't have the ability to issue subpoenas, who doesn't have the ability to really tee it up in the way you're speaking about and make a move towards contempt of Congress. So it's one of those things where in administrations of both parties, members of the executive branch don't like to answer questions. Bill Clinton's administration did it. I'm sure there were occasions where Barack Obama's administration did it. I think it's more egregious in the current climate with Jeff Sessions. One more note, though, this morning you may have seen, Wednesday morning as we tape this, President Trump has once again taken to criticizing Jeff Sessions for his decision to recuse himself from the Russia investigation, which was you know, one good thing that Jeff Sessions did because it was you know, acting according to protocol and pursuant to the direction of the career ethics professionals at the Department of Justice. And in a lengthy, I think, three-part tweet, President Trump cites to Trey Gowdy, who's a senior member of the Intel Committee on the Republican side in the House, saying, you know, President Trump is obviously frustrated and should have known before he appointed Jeff Sessions that he would have to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. I think that's silly in many ways. President Trump is not a dummy. He should have understood that there would be this risk of having to recuse yourself because Jeff Sessions was part of the campaign. What's also interesting and funny, actually, about President Trump quoting from Trey Gowdy, Trey Gowdy said something else in the last couple of days, I think maybe even in the same interview. And that is with respect to this whole hullabaloo about whether or not there was a spy, quote unquote spy, put into the Trump campaign by the FBI to investigate bad actions by Russians in connection with our election. Trey Gowdy said he doesn't believe there was a spy. He doesn't believe that the FBI did anything inappropriate. And he's a former prosecutor himself and a Republican and a supporter of the president. So it would have been nice to see President Trump tweet and quote that part of Trey Gowdy's statements also. Here's a question from Twitter user Campbell Stewart. Preet Bharara, will you comment on the legal ethical issues which arise from President's personal attorney, Emmett Flood, attending the recent Gang of Eight meeting on confidential intelligence? Does this bolster the obstruction case? Hashtag ask Preet. Campbell, thanks for your question. So people may remember that there was this meeting with law enforcement officials, high-ranking law enforcement officials, about their use of an informant in connection with their Russia investigation last year. Initially, there was going to be only Republican attendance, and then ultimately it became a meeting with the Gang of Eight, which includes both Democrats and Republicans. And the reports were that Ahmed Flood, the latest personal attorney for the president, attended along with Chief of Staff Kelly. The question on whether it was legal or ethical, I don't think there was anything unlawful about their attending the meeting. It's also true, based on my understanding, and if you believe the reports from the White House that Flood and Kelly only attended at the beginning, weren't part of the substantive briefing, 
and sort of just introduced the meeting, I don't know if it was illegal or unethical. I think it was incredibly stupid. It again gives the impression that all this is being done for the personal benefit of the president. And he's trying to steer things away from himself because he's in some personal jeopardy, personal legal jeopardy. And he's not interested in getting to the bottom of things for the country. And I think anybody, including John Kelly, who's supposed to be smart, would have understood the optics problem with getting anywhere near that meeting, either at the beginning or the end, uh, or even for a couple of minutes. When you ask, does this bolster the obstruction case? I don't think so. And we need to be careful not to immediately label anything and everything that the president and his people do, including Rudy Giuliani, going on TV and defending him in many silly ways, that that's all part of obstruction. It's not. You know, there's some things that people do that I think are not wise and do a disservice to the intelligence of the people who are listening and watching, but it doesn't mean it's all obstruction. You know, obstruction is a serious thing. It requires serious misconduct. Uh, this is not that, but I think it was incredibly foolish for them to give fodder to the other side. So one more thing, you know, a lot of things happened this week, which is true of a lot of different weeks since I've been doing the show, but two quick things. One is the special master in the Michael Cohen case, former district court judge Barbara Jones, who's terrific and smart and well-respected when she was a judge, both by prosecutors and by the defense bar, and I appeared in front of her many times and think she's incredibly diligent, smart, responsible. She has issued her first report in connection with the Michael Cohen filtering of attorney-client privilege materials from non-privileged materials. And they're actually in court today, Wednesday, to talk about how they're going to proceed. And it turns out that only a tiny fraction of the materials that have been reviewed so far have been deemed privileged. And what that means is that small quantity of material will not be given to the prosecutors, will be kept with the special master and, and turned back to Michael Cohen and his lawyer. But it means the vast majority of material will come to the prosecutors and they can exploit and use as appropriate under the rules in a potential case against him. The report also indicates that there's more documents and more evidence from other devices that Michael Cohen had that the government seized in connection with those searches. And we'll see how much information is produced from those. The significance of all this, I think, is um, I've said from the beginning that I believe that the Southern District of New York, in making the decision to do these searches, these high-stakes searches of the lawyer to the President of the United States, probably felt it had sufficient evidence or was going to have sufficient evidence to make a serious criminal charge against Michael Cohen. So what's going on? Why hasn't that happened? My guess is they haven't made a charge because they're waiting to see what other evidence there is in the materials that were seized. But they haven't had those materials because we went through the special master process to make sure that the attorney-client privilege wasn't infringed. So now that the prosecutors have started to get this material, they will have more and more confidence in the evidence that they've already put together. They might have additional evidence to pile on top of what they already have. And so my prediction is, if there's going to be a charge, we could see it in the coming weeks because now the yield from the searches is coming back to the Southern District. And one other thing happened in the last week as well. Harvey Weinstein, former Hollywood mogul, was arrested by the NYPD and charged by the Manhattan DA's office with rape and other crimes. And we've been talking about that issue from time to time, most recently with Ronan Farrow. The allegations by many, many, many credible women against Harvey Weinstein indicate to me, you know, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty, and you have that presumption of innocence in this country. But from everything that we see, it seems like finally the victims of Harvey Weinstein and his alleged odious conduct will see some justice. 
and that's a good thing. So welcome to the first episode in a four-part series about the criminal justice system. You know, we've had a lot of prosecutors on the show. We've had the commissioner of the New York City Police Department on. We had the former head of the DEA. But we really haven't had a prominent defense lawyer on the show. And the criminal justice system is not just prosecutors and not just cops and FBI agents. There's a defense. And everyone in America who's charged with a crime has a constitutional right to an attorney. And if you have a lot of money and a lot of means... The person you often hire is my guest, Ben Brathman, one of the most famous defense lawyers in the country. He's represented a lot of household names, Sean Puffy Combs, Michael Jackson, the so-called pharma bro, Martin Shkreli, and he's currently representing Harvey Weinstein, much in the news. Now, we did this interview several weeks ago before Harvey Weinstein was arrested by the Manhattan DA's office, so we don't talk about Harvey Weinstein in this show. But I did speak with him about our adversarial system of justice and why everyone, even people widely despised and accused of doing horrible things, deserves a good lawyer. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay Tuned with Preet is supported by ZipRecruiter. I've had the privilege to hire brilliant colleagues throughout my career. Every employer needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter revolutionized hiring. Their technology finds great candidates for you. It learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. Right now, my listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. Ben Brafman, welcome to the show. Thank you. You're one of the most sought-after criminal defense lawyers in the country, if not the galaxy. So I appreciate your taking the time. My pleasure. So what I thought we'd do today is spend some time sort of discussing how you do your job, how criminal defense lawyers do their job. So let's start with this. So first, you've got to get retained right. by a client. So a guy, let's say, gets arrested by the federal authorities or state authorities, and he's looking for a lawyer, and he calls you up, and he's thinking about hiring you, but hasn't made a decision yet. That happens to you on a regular basis? Regular basis. How does that work? Give us an example of how you persuade someone to pay what it costs to retain the likes of you. Well, a lot of my clients come through other firms. It's not often that somebody just picks you out of the yellow pages at this point in my career. So people come to me referred by other lawyers, and then it's my objective you close it. You not close to the screw deal. it up. Right. So I meet them, and they come in all sizes and shapes, and... Uh, backgrounds and some are easier to deal with than others and some have never dealt with a lawyer and most have never dealt with a criminal defense lawyer. I'm, I'm rarely uh, representing someone with a serious criminal record, at least not in the last 20 years. So people who come to me for the first time, um, it's culture shock for them and I have a lot of explaining to do. What's your pitch to those people? Well, I, I think it's a pitch that's fact specific. Not every case is the same and some people retain me to keep from being prosecuted, and I think that's a big part of my practice that nobody ever reads about. It's some of my greatest successes no one will ever read about because I kept prosecutors from prosecuting, and it's a much bigger win when you give someone back their life before they've uh, been destroyed by an indictment or an arrest. And that's a different pitch than when you're representing someone who's been indicted. Um, if you're summarily arrested, it's a nightmare until you arrange for bail and get them through the system. And that's often the most difficult part of the case for me. Maybe there's no typical defendant. 
But someone who's a high-profile person because they're a celebrity or they're wealthy or they're prominent in some way and they've been arrested, are they looking for someone who will tell them you're going to beat the charges? You're going to fight hard for them? That you have a legal strategy? Are they looking for someone who is reassuring and going to hold their hand a little bit? What's, what's the psychology of someone over the course of years that you've been doing this that you think people in that position have when you get called? I think they want to verify that you know what you're doing. I think they want to know that you're competent. I think there's a certain amount of humanity that you have to inject into the process because it's the worst time in the lives of most of the people um, when they come into my office. I'm sort of like an oncologist. No one is happy to see me, and they wish they never met a guy like me. But after they meet me, I try and put some comfort into their life that it may not end badly. There is no script. You really, you know, rolling with the punches. Is this person sophisticated? Do they come in with an entourage? Do you need to impress more than the defendant? Are there lawyers they bring with them? Who had, who had an entourage? I think a lot of my clients, certainly like, like the celebrities who? come in. Puff Daddy had more people than could fit into my conference room. <laughs> it, it was it was difficult at the outset because, you know, he didn't know me. Uh, the people who were around him were around him for a long time. They had enjoyed his success and he was their meal ticket, if you will. And suddenly, you know, here's this, you know, short Jewish white guy who is injected into the process and wants to call the shots. Sometimes I have to say things like, look, you're having a heart attack and I'm a cardiologist. And you don't always survive a heart attack, but the best chances you have are if you listen to a trained cardiologist. So did you call him Puff Daddy? Oh, well, I, I started with Mr. Combs. It went to uh, Puff Daddy. It went to Puff. It went to Diddy. And that was my opening statement. What did he call you? He called me Uncle Benny um, <laughs> after, after he warmed up. But that was my opening statement, to be candid with you. You can call him Sean Combs. You can call him Puff Daddy. You can call him Puffy. You just can't call him guilty. Remind, remind, that's pretty good. Did you write that yourself? Good. I write it myself. What, remind folks what he was charged with and maybe some folks who he was or is. Well, you know, this happened 20 he's years not, ago. He's not, as, he's not as well known as he was. Um, 20 years ago, he was the hottest talent in the hip-hop world, and he was dating Jennifer Lopez, who was the hottest talent in the female hip-hop world. And they were in a club, and there was a shooting, and he was charged with attempted murder and weapons possession and uh, bribing a driver to take the weight. And after a 10-week trial, which at the time was the trial of the decade, he was acquitted of all charges. Who was he charged by? Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Bob Morgenthau's Bob office. Bob yeah. Right. Legend. Legend. But you are too. At the time, I was not. <laughs> but you're saying now you are. It's a, that's not a nice a legend, concession. But I think, I've, <laughs> I think I've earned some credit as a good criminal defense lawyer. So let's take that example of right. Mr. Combs. He got an entourage. Did he decide to retain you before he met you or did you have to sell him? I had to sell him, but he was referred to me by Johnny Cochran, who he had known since he was a little boy. So One, it, one of OJ's lawyers. Correct. Cochran vouched for me, if you will. And I wasn't retained by Combs until after he met me several times. How about Michael Jackson? How'd that retention come about? That came through Johnny Cochran, quite frankly. He's very helpful to you. He was, and I miss him. And he was a brilliant lawyer. You say that when you try to encourage and persuade a client to retain you, you don't oversell the likelihood of success. In my experience on the other side, the sense I've gotten from a lot of people is some people get retained because they tell the defendant who's been charged by a prosecutor 
the case is nonsense, the case is BS, I'm going to get it dismissed. I think some of them go on to say, we're going to attack the prosecution, we're going to attack the FBI or the NYPD, we're going to get them disbarred, and they're going to regret the day they ever decided to mess with you, which may be an overstatement given what the facts are. Do you know people who do that, and what do you think about that practice? I think there are a lot of people practicing criminal defense work who should not be practicing criminal defense work. And I think anyone who would start a conversation like that or make those type of representations is asking uh, for trouble. And ultimately, a lot of these people last a couple of years in the industry, and then you don't hear from them anymore. And you certainly don't hear about them. But understand there are several levels of criminal defense work. There are a number of people who are represented, as you and I both know, by the Legal Aid Society, federal defenders, CJA, some of the best lawyers in New York practice in those offices, and they represent people who are either indigent or who don't have the ability to retain counsel. And then you have a whole level of criminal defense lawyers who are just going through the motions of being criminal defense lawyer. And sometimes, in order to land a client, they need to say things which may be are not appropriate or are potentially dangerous to themselves personally because you make these predictions and it doesn't happen. you got explaining to do. Yeah, look, I see it all the time. A lot of high-profile defendants who we charged in my old office, many of them re- retained you, and some retained folks who had a reputation for being bullies and loud mouths but not very good in the courtroom because my sense is, which is why I asked the question, that they convinced the defendant who's in a vulnerable place, even if they're high profile, that they had a larger chance of winning than they actually did. People in that position are desperate to hear that. They want very much to hear it. They want to hear the doctor say it's operable, it's not malignant, and you're going to be okay. You're going to go through some So they go with the doctor, not, not based on how realistic they are, but on how hopeful they are. So now let's say you've been retained. And in the case where someone has been charged, let's say it's a violent crime or it could be a financial fraud. What do you do? You sit down with the client. Do you go through all the facts? Do you wait? Do you get to know them a little bit first? Do you tell them there's some things I don't want to know? You know, people who watch a lot of television and right. watch crime fiction on TV, they may not appreciate. I like to know. Rarely do I ever put a client on the witness stand uh, anyway, unless I'm convinced that they have an explanation that's A, truthful, and B, consistent with reasonableness, because I've won a lot of trials where the defendant never took the witness stand, and it's a question of creating reasonable doubt or creating a legal defense that will ultimately help me uh, explain the reasonable doubt to a, a jury as a matter of law, even if the judge doesn't agree. It's different in every case. You need to allay some concerns early on because people who have never been injected into the criminal justice system really have a view of the system that's fueled by either television or or movies. And it's not really a, an accurate depiction in most cases. And people who've been involved in the criminal justice system their whole lives, they don't want to have those conversations. They understand. Sometimes it's much easier to represent someone who's essentially been in and out of the system, and uh, they're easier because uh, they don't need the hand-holding and, and the comfort that comes with my job. I tell people that I'm almost as much a psychiatrist sometimes as I am a, a criminal defense lawyer. And what the people who look at my job don't really understand is how hard it is when you're dealing with someone who's hanging by a thread emotionally. And sometimes it's scary because you think 
you know, people are going to go out and kill themselves, and I need to convince them that this is going to either end well or that there is life after this uh, issue passes. Do you think it's important to keep some distance from your client? Because based on what you describe, they're going through a very difficult time. Do you become their friend? And is that okay to become their friend, or does that bring you guys too close? Again, depending on the client, sometimes I keep really substantial distance, and I really don't want to have anything to do with them personally outside a courtroom, outside my office. And then there are people who right now are still close to me 20 years after I've walked them through this uh, you know, horrible uh, event in their lives. They invite me to their kids' weddings. I have a So it guy, depends on the person. Depends on the guy. I have a baby who was named after me by a Bukharian man who was facing deportation. A daughter? A son. Okay. Because Benjamin is, you know... No, it was a son, and they said, I'd like you to come to the ceremony tomorrow. I said, I really can't. I'm on trial. He says, I'm naming my son after you. And I said, I guess I have to go. <laughs> what, uh, kind, what kind of case was It that? was an arson case in which I think he was framed by a Russian street gang. And since he didn't pay the extortion, they burned down his supermarket. And it was a horrible case because there would have been a good plea but for the fact that the plea would have resulted in his deportation. He had 62 members of his family who lived here. His children lived here. His wife was a doctor. She lived here, and he was not a citizen. I could have gotten him 18 months on a plea, and yet we went to trial, and at the end, if he had been convicted, there was a mandatory minimum 10-year sentence because a fireman had been hurt in an arson. Two months after 9-11, I had to cross-examine a fireman in full parade uniform. You know what my cross was? Tell it's a, me. It's an honor We're going to get to cross-examine It's an honor to meet, to meet you, sir, and I thank you on behalf of my family for your heroic service to the city of New York after 9-11 and during 9-11. And one of the prosecutors in the case turned to me and he said, I think he just won the trial. <laughs> How do you deal with a client who's difficult and maybe a jerk. One example comes to mind that people may have read about. You recently represented a person by the name of Martin Shkreli, right. who's not a particularly popular person. You said at his sentencing, there are times when I want to hug him and hold him and comfort him, and there are times I want to punch him in the face. And that was a true statement. I said it in court and it turned out to be the quote of the day in the New York Times. And I don't think I've ever said something more appropriate in the well of a courtroom because I think he's a brilliant young man. I think he is a very good person fundamentally. I think he's misunderstood. I think he has you know serious issues that he himself is dealing with. And I've never been in a case where someone, after a reasonably good verdict, has done more by his own statements to undermine all of my efforts and to alienate himself from the government um, and ultimately the court. I think the judge is a terrific judge. I like her a lot, have a great deal of respect for her. I'm absolutely convinced that um, he got two or three years more for his sentence because he was Martin Shkreli and not necessarily because of the crime he was uh, convicted of. Were you able to control him at all? Yeah, I was. And I was. So, so what we saw, so what the public saw, was a kinder, gentler Martin Shkreli because well, he of came you. To, he came to court every day. He was never late. He was always in the best of behavior while in court. On one occasion, he wandered into a press overflow room and got into it with the reporters. But understand something. He was vilified, I think unfairly, and essentially turned into the most hated man in America. And the venom in the voir dire 
when we were picking a jury. And I've had, you know, clients who were murderers who dismembered people and jurors would hear the charges and say, I can be fair. And then, you know, they heard it was Martin Shkreli and they wanted to take him out in the courtroom. So it was pretty scary. How do you mitigate that if you have a client who is, who is so vilified in your view? I think my opening statement in that case, uh, I got up and I said, look, like Lady Gaga said, he was born this way. I don't think what you're going to see is a terribly uh, difficult person. I don't think he's venal or corrupt. And I think you're going to find him not guilty, but you got, you got to get beyond the bizarre behavior and the bizarre, you know, twirling of his hair and turning in his seat and the smirks that I think you will ultimately conclude that he can't control. I humanize them. And I think what I bring to the well of a courtroom, uh, at least I've been told, and I think it's true, is by force of my own personality. I want jurors to like me. I want jurors to believe me. I want jurors to be able to rely on me. And I want them to have comfort in doing so. And when I got up and I tried to humanize Martin Shkreli, everybody in the courtroom relaxed because they were under the impression that he was such a bad person that they had to hate him. And we went through a very extensive wadir and I picked people with my colleagues um, who I thought were really just decent people. There was no profile of a juror. I wanted people who reasonably impressed me as being someone who, if I had to have a cup of coffee with them, I could sit through the ordeal and, and probably make conversation with them. And you could see by how they carry themselves, by the statements, by sometimes the humor by which they responded to questions. I like that. And when I finished my opening statement, I had 12 people in their body language softened up. They relaxed in their seats. You could actually, in my view, I could see a change in the way they carry themselves before they came into the box um, and after the opening statement. And do, you try to be, do you try to be more likable to compensate for an unlikable client? Or are you always as charming as you were in that case? I had a lot to work with in that case. And when the jury acquitted him of five out of the eight counts, you know, to be honest with you, I've had a lot of straight out acquittals that I'm very proud of. I think this was maybe one of the best verdicts I've ever um, received, even though he got convicted and uh, is now sentenced to, to prison because I got a jury to say not guilty five times when the defendant was, in their view, someone who was supposed to be the most hated man in America. So let's talk about now cases that you may go away before there's a charge or you may go away before there's a guilty plea or a trial. Because as you say, and I agree with this, that the biggest victories for someone are when they don't have to go through the ordeal of the trial at all. And you convince prosecutors who are difficult people to convince, and they can be very obstinate, and I know that from personal experience. You represented someone by the name of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, DSK. Tell me how that felt and remind people what that case was about. Well, Dominique Strauss-Kahn was on his way to becoming the president of France. He was the head of the International Monetary Fund and perhaps one of the most important economic leaders in the world. And he was arrested in New York in 2011, I think, and charged with attempted rape of a maid in a hotel in Manhattan. He was remanded and, and held for five days at Rikers Island. Um, we ultimately were able to have him released on $5 million bail. I've never seen a media presence in all of my cases collectively, not in Puff Daddy, Michael Jackson combined, did you see the number of people with cameras and reporters from, it was from all over the world. And it was 
hundreds of people. They were camped out of my office for three months in the summer in the 100-degree weather, taking pictures of me getting in and out of a car without saying anything. And the decision we made, which I think helped us, was not to attack the district attorney's office and not to discuss the facts other than to say, and if you look at the clips, I said this 2,000 times, we don't believe that the encounter was forcible and therefore it wasn't criminal and we're not going to answer any other questions about what went on in the room because as a practical matter, what went on in the room could be offensive and unpleasant, but if it's not a crime, it's really nobody's business. And that case was then indicted. And as you know, that's another step in the process, summary arrest, indictment. And we maintained that the witness was not telling the truth and the, what she described was, in our view, not only physically impossible, but it changed every time she um, gave another statement. And her lawyer, who is a, now turned into a good friend before he died, was Ken Thompson. He became the, the, the Brooklyn Ken, district Ken, attorney. Very bright guy. I think he made a very big mistake. He allowed her to speak publicly on several occasions. And most notably, he allowed her to be interviewed by Robin Roberts on television. And when I watched the Robin Roberts interview, I said, you know, game over. Because the account she gave Robin Roberts was so different than the account she gave to the police in the complaint and so different than what the district attorney had told me. And I said, you know, she's just not going to be a witness that's going to provide you with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think they began to worry about her vulnerabilities and the forensic evidence in that case was not consistent with the testimony. So Bill Taylor and I did a very good job in one understanding the science. You know, you know people think, well, you just talk good. No, you really work hard. Um, you got to talk good also. You got to talk good, but you got to know what you're saying. Of course. You know, and, and in that case, the forensic evidence or the lack of forensic evidence was so inconsistent with what the allegation was that we used it affirmatively. But that case be, began to spiral out of control from the district attorney's perspective because you kept giving them different issues. And one of the things we did, we learned a lot about this woman that was bad. And yet we did not seek to trash her and give it to the media. We gave it to the district attorney's office. You're relatively restrained in the press when you represent someone who has a high profile. Not every lawyer is. You see, you know, people who are listening, you turn on the TV and someone prominent gets arrested and the defense lawyer goes to the microphone and says this is an outrage. This case never should have been brought, attacks the prosecutors. There may or may not be a president who does that from time to time. Is your decision to be minimal and minimalist in your statements after you have a client charged? Is that, a, is that a strategic thing or is that just how you are? It's how I am, but it's also a strategic thing. And even if I wasn't that way, I'm disciplined enough to understand that you should not attack a prosecutor who you may then be on your knees in front of six months down the road. In that same both, case. Both, every, almost every yeah. case. Look, I, I have people who ultimately have to plead. And as you well know, I work very hard in trying to get the kind of plea that gives me the best chance of convincing a judge either not to incarcerate someone or to incarcerate them for a modest period of time. And if you're trying to work out a reasonable plea and what you've done is, you know, called the prosecutor incompetent or unprofessional or corrupt, that stings and it doesn't go away. So when you want to go in the door on your hands and knees, as I say over and over again in this, in this profession, um, you need to have the door open and not have this become personal. I've rarely seen 
prosecutors who have done something that is so outrageous that I can actually criticize them. And even then, I don't until and unless it becomes an issue in the well of the courtroom. But there are other considerations, too, when you have a high-profile client, right? It's not just ultimately being able to have a good relationship with the prosecutor with whom you might have to negotiate, but you also want to defend their reputation publicly. I presume that's why some lawyers do it. And they come out swinging because they want to make sure that the public appreciates that they think that the charges are outrageous. Like, How do you think about that aspect of it? I think there is something to be said for being able to, on occasion, try to defend the client and level the playing field. But you can't do it by making reckless statements because at the end of the day, that undermines the objective. Uh, you know, you've been in the eye of the storm as often as I have, and maintaining your credibility with the media is very important uh, to being viewed as a serious player, to being viewed by the judges who you appear in front of as a, as a serious player, and you need to sometimes shut it down. On the other hand, you know, when I had, uh, I go back to Puff Daddy, for example, you know, he was starting a fashion company right when the trial started. And he said to me, look, I'm not going to talk about the case, but I got to be able to talk about my fashion company because I got millions of dollars by investors who have a right to have me promote this company. I said, you're right. Let me help you. So Johnny Cochran and I went to the runway party at Bryant Park on the night of the show. It was a brilliant show. We talked about what a brilliant entrepreneur he was. We didn't talk about the case, but that was seen by the jury pool. It was seen by the people who ultimately got on the jury pool. So what we did was not say, by the way, this brilliant entrepreneur is also falsely accused by a raging lunatic in the DA's office. We said, Mr. Combs is going to go to trial and we're going to try that case in the courtroom. But tonight is his uh, fashion night. So let's not talk about the case. Let's talk about that gray uh, suit, which I think is just outrageous. And it's great. (laughs) Do you think that your colleagues in the defense bar who come out swinging and punching are making tactical error in almost every case? In most cases, yes. And some do it better than others. Not every high-profile case is a high-profile case because the person in the defendant's place is a celebrity. Some high-profile cases get extraordinary coverage because of the notorious nature of the crime. This, this kid who you know, did the mass shooting in Florida, that's a high-profile case. But you don't know who represents him. You don't know whether they have any experience with the media. It's very seductive. You have to be really on your A-game not to be seduced by the fact that suddenly you know what everybody in the world is trying to figure out, and you know, and you're not telling anybody. I mean, I'll tell you a very funny story. In the Dominic Strauss-Kahn case, I was being invited to Germany on a private plane to go on a talk show, Japan, and I was like laughing at some of these offers. These people didn't know me. It was the Dominic Strauss-Kahn case, and one Sunday morning, my cell phone rings, and I pick up the phone, and the voice says, Ben, it's Matt. And I said, Matt who? And he said, it's Matt Lauer. And I said, Matt, you've never called me before. How the hell would I know it's you? 
And he says, well, you know, I'd love for you to go on, you know, my program and bring Dominic Strauss-Kahn and have him be interviewed by me. You know, Matt Lauer interviews a great way to get your side across. I said, back, I, back, back then, then it was, back then, right? Yeah. And I said, I, you know, I turned down Barbara Walters. I've turned down the Today Show and Good Morning America, and I'm just not doing it. It's, but when you get a call like that, it's, it's seductive, you know. It's not every day that a substantial media personality calls you in, on your private cell and invites you to be on. And I've often told lawyers when I've lectured about this, you know, the worst thing a lawyer can do is exploit the attorney-client relationship. Clients don't like it. Judges don't like it. My career has has received a great deal of press coverage by virtue of who I've represented and some of the results I've been able to get. But if I do something to create a good press day for you and we lose the case, no one will ever remember the good press day. If you get a bad press day and a bad press day and a bad press day, but we win, no one's going to look back at the bad press day. They're going to look at the good press day. Right. So you have a smart strategy, tactical strategy of being low-key in the press when you have a client who is in jeopardy and you don't want that client to be talking and you try to tell them not to do that. There's another related thing that happens with high-profile defendants who have other interests too, business interests like you said Puff Daddy had. Martha Stewart had a business interest at the time that she was charged. And they want to make sure that they are defending themselves publicly so that investors have confidence and customers of their business have confidence. And sometimes they want to come and talk to the prosecutors to explain themselves. This is before trial, right? And they want to be able to convince them in this process that we talked about, you know, so the charges are either dropped or not brought at all, there is inherent danger in people coming and talking to the prosecutors, particularly if they've done something wrong. How do you handle the issue of bringing your client in to convince the prosecutors to drop the case? Well, I'll answer it in two ways. The number of cases where that is even an option, a few and far in between. The number of cases where the client wants to do that the more powerful they perceive themselves to be, the more difficult it is to sort of wrestle them to the ground. And I think people should be reminded that Martha Stewart went to prison because she spoke to the government, was charged with lying to prosecutors, and went to prison because she was convicted of lying to federal agents in the course of a criminal investigation. She did not go to jail because she was convicted of securities fraud. And I have the following conversation at least 25 times in my life where I say to somebody, you can't talk to them. You need to invoke even if you're subpoenaed. Invoke, and, invoke, and invoke the your Fifth Amendment, Amendment privilege, privilege yeah. and, and not go in and talk. And they look at me and they say, if I invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege, they will think I have something to hide. And I will then say, you do. <laughs> you do. Right. If you go in and tell the truth, you'll be incriminated. And if you go in and lie, you'll get indicted for lying. There is no upside to going in. Now, I'm a, I'm a very good proxy. And if I can't sell a prosecutor on pausing it's going to be hard for the client to sell them. I don't cry wolf. I don't go to you in the five or six or seven years that you were there at the Southern District. Seven, I, seven and a half. Seven and a half years. I think I came to you once or twice, and it was really to try and work out a different plea. I don't think it was to persuade you to listen to my client or on an, on an attorney proffer. I'll tell you what you did on a okay. few occasions, which other people haven't done. And, you know, obviously you're a member of the defense bar, but I took your word when you said this a few times, when you had a trial against people in my office, whichever way it went, and usually it went our way, 
if you had a good experience with the prosecutors, you would call me up. Right. And you would say, you should just know that prosecutors A and B are fine lawyers, and they tried the case fair and square, and you should be proud of the work that they did. Very few people do that. Almost no one does that. It's not unsmart no, to but, tell the U.S. attorney that, but, but, but I know you meant it. I, I do and mean There's it. no reason why people can't be, especially when they're repeat players, collegial with each other. It is not only a good way to be as a person, because decency is important, and you know, collegiality is important, even when you're on the other side of the, of the aisle in politics, on the other side of the, the well in a courtroom, it's also smart. It's also an honest way to practice. Prosecutors have not easy lives. I was a prosecutor. They don't get paid well. They work very, very hard. And I think probably one of the nicest things ever said to me in the well of a courtroom was uh, by a prosecutor. The case had resulted in an acquittal. It was sort of a resume kind of a case for a prosecutor who was you know, in his cups, sort of holding his head, and I could see how disappointed he was, and I was smart enough not to go over and say, you tried a great case, because he didn't want to hear from me then, but I was packing up my stuff and trying to get out of the courtroom before the jury changed its mind, and he looked at me and he says, I'm going to tell you something, right now I hate your guts, but if a member of my family were ever arrested, you would be my first call. And I was touched by that. Well, that's the best compliment you can give someone, is is not how they are on TV, and not what you thought they did in court, but if you were in trouble, we would have these conversations, by the right. way. You know, I'm sure that you appreciate in the same way that you folks talked about the prosecutors. When we sat around at lunch, and including during my time as U.S. attorney, the most powerful question to ask, to answer the issue of who is a good lawyer, is if you were in trouble or your parent was in trouble, who would you call? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. Do you think that sometimes you have to act less collegial to the prosecutors? in front of your client? Sometimes clients don't want you to schmooze with prosecutors. I've tried to convince people on both sides, both clients and prosecutors. They're not the enemy. I'm not the enemy. We're adversaries. This is an adversarial you know, system. But, but that's system. really hard for a person whose liberty is in the balance. It is. Because look, I've had people glare at me and curse at me and curse at my prosecutors. There's been you know, occasions of violence and the deputy marshals have to be called in because someone throws a punch. That's a tall order to convince people not to think of the prosecutor as the enemy. But those clients are really, in my experience, rare. Are there any clients you will not take on? Is there any category of case you will not do? You know, I've been asked that question a lot. I think because of my own background, my own heritage, I'm not the right person to represent, you know, a terrorist charged with doing, a, you know, an act of mass murder. But why? But why? why? Why is that? Well, if, if you I, believe I that everyone deserves a defense. I do, and I'm just not the right guy. You know, like I lost much of my family during the Holocaust by people who were so filled with hate that they were willing to take my grandmother and shovel her into a, a crematoria. That's in my, in my DNA. Um, and I don't want to be in a room with someone who hates America so much that they're willing to kill several thousand, you know, men, women, and children indiscriminately, and then rely on my legal skills and experience to defend them. Those cases don't come to me uh, as a practical matter. Well, not if you and, keep saying things like that. Well, I'm, and I'm glad <laughs> to, that they don't come to me because I do believe that the most vilified among us are where the defense bar needs to shine. I mean, it's very easy to represent someone who's popular and smart and funny and gregarious. It's very easy to do that. But I think people who come to me are at the worst moment in their life. And for me to be obnoxious or unnecessarily harsh or cruel is really not right. And I'm not supposed to pass moral judgment. You can't do what I do 
and I have a great conversation with my wife for 25 years ago where, you know, what at that point, you wanted to learn how to be a trial lawyer. You had to try organized crime cases. You know, today, God bless them, there's very little, if any, organized crime. But in those days, some of the people he represented were like sort of dangerous people. So I'm representing someone in a southern district who's charged with numerous murders and horrible dismemberments. And um, I have the 3,500 material, the exhibits on my kitchen table where I'm working, and my wife sees it, and she's a librarian, so this stuff, you know, she doesn't understand why I want to do this and why I am doing it. And she looks at this stuff, and she's horrified by it. And six months later, my client was acquitted. And I remember coming home, and I said to her, he was acquitted. She looked at me, and she said, this is good? (laughs) (laughs) You're making a living. Right. I want to talk about trials. Is trial theater... Some, but it's theater. Do you consider yourself to be an actor on the stage when you're in trial? No, but I am in the well of a courtroom. The difference between me and an actor is I'm not scripted. Is there some theater in a courtroom? Sure. Being able to speak well and being eloquent and having a gift for gab is helpful. But unless you put in the hours and know the subject matter so well that the words just jump into your face, you're not going to be successful. I know a lot of charming, very good-looking, attractive, eloquent people who have the intelligence to do this, but they just don't want to do the homework. I mean, I have a job where every night I basically have homework. And when you're in a trial zone, it's nonstop and you don't sleep and you you know, want to throw up three or four times a day, even at this point in my life when I think I'm a very experienced trial lawyer. Look, I, I agree with all of that. I also think that people who think of it as theater are off base to the extent they think they need to be someone that they're not. And the most important thing, and I think you'll agree with this, is to have authenticity. That's important in life, that's important in politics, that's important in the courtroom. Absolutely. How important is jury selection? Very important. Do you have a theory of the kinds of people that you think should be on a jury when you're the defense lawyer and the kinds of people who should not be on a jury as a general rule? I think the general rules as a defense lawyer is you want people who are essentially looser, not buttoned up to the point where they can't see the other side of an argument. I think uh, most people will tell you that Republican conservative people who have always, you know, worked either in a bank or a structured environment are probably not good defense jurors. I know it's good to say the presumption of innocence, but most people don't think you were picked out of the yellow pages for the distinction of being named in in an indictment. So it's it's a lot to overcome in terms of that built-in prejudice. I'm up against the government or the state of New York. That's a lot uh, to overcome because I think people identify more with prosecutors than they do with defense lawyers. But that's not always true in New York. It's not always true in New York, but I, I like people who have an alternate lifestyle. I right. like people Prosecutors who, don't like those people. Right. Like prosecutors I, like, I was told when I first started trying cases, you know, the kind of person you want is a middle-aged accountant. As a prosecutor, yes. There are usually, in my experience, two, three, four, five people who run a jury. And the rest of the people are not necessarily fillers, but they're not looking to take a stand. And sometimes if you guess right about your strong juror, you win. And I'll give you a a perfect example. So I'm being told by a jury consultant that juror gets a zero on our profile of one to five, and we were looking for fours and fives. And I said, I like her. 
What do you like about her? She teaches autistic children. He says, what does that have to do with this case? You cannot be a teacher of autistic children and be a mean person. You have empathy. And you have to have patience and empathy, and you have to have a heart. My defense in this case that you can't convict unless you're sure and you can't be sure. Therefore, you have to acquit. A person who's a good person gets that. And I won. Do you have a theory of cross-examination? People think every cross is a knockdown, drag-out slugfest. Most are not. Most are not. And most they, they mostly don't work if that's what you're trying to, Correct. What you're trying to do. Yeah, there are times when you're cross-examining a career informant where who you just need to just leave in a puddle on the, on the seat. And I can do those crosses, I think, as well as anybody I've been told. Which means what? Which means you're not yelling, you're not doing aha. You're not yelling, not but Perry you're Mason. not giving them any room. You're not giving them any ability to explain their answer. You're keeping them on a very tight leash, and your cross-examination, if it's really done well, gets yeses and nos, and you know exactly what's coming before you ask the question, and you don't allow them to squirm out, and you don't give them the room, and by the time you're done, you have essentially created reasonable doubt, regardless of the redirect that the prosecutor can do. My best cross-examinations, I believe, have been my affirmative cross-examinations where I'm dealing with someone who knows my client for 30 years and I'm not putting the defendant on the witness stand and I'm trying for the first day to get everything good about my client into the record that I possibly can on the argument that it can test the witness's memory. But I've turned the prosecution witness into maybe a character witness for my client and then at the end of the day, there's an area where I turn and they don't see it coming and there's a point or two that I want to make and then I sit down and the worst cross-examiners don't know when to sit down. They get an answer that's breathtaking and they ask it again. They ask another question. And it's just crazy. And you, do you ever start hot or do you start soft and build up to hot? It depends. It really, yeah. you know, it depends. There are cases where you have to start hot because you have an arrogant, obnoxious a witness who is going to try and, and run the cross-examination. You want to make sure they understand the ground rules right up front and personal. And, you know, I've started cross-examinations with one right between the eyes and people say, why don't you leave that for the end? He says, because I don't need it at the end. Do you think prosecutors put on too many witnesses? Yes. I think the biggest failing of of prosecutors is they overtry a case and at the end they create doubt where none would be if they have three people testify to the same thing. My job is to get them to be inconsistent with each other and it's generally pretty easy to do that because no three people say the same thing the same exact way. More is sometimes less. More is sometimes much less. So you haven't, you haven't asked me the question I'm always asked. Does humor help? No, because I know the answer to that question. Okay. Of and course I, it does. Can I give you one example? Please. No. I had a very important FBI agent who was so full of himself that it was impossible for him to suggest that he had made a mistake or to agree that he had made a mistake. I saw it 15 times in the course of his direct examination where prosecutors were trying their best to help him just acknowledge that it was a typo or no, he wouldn't, he wouldn't go there. And I had nothing to cross-examine about except one little vignette that was in the line sheets, which the agents prepare when they're on a surveillance or on a wiretap. This was a physical surveillance. Now I'm about five, six and the agent was a very big man. And I'm, now i got a question. When I have a line sheet which says the following, Special Agent X, at 10.03 a.m., did you see someone who you described as being five foot eight, 
wearing a navy blue suit, white shirt, and a red tie, go into this garage? And he said, yes. 30 minutes later, did that man leave? And he said, yes. And did you describe him as being six foot four, having a blue suit, white shirt, and a red tie? Exactly the clothing he wore going in. And yes. Going in, he was 5'8", and coming out, he was 6'4". Is that correct? And he said, yes. And I said, can anybody go to that garage? <laughs> and I brought the house down. And it was before a judge who just hated me. And even he laughed. And the agent was so angry that I really thought he was going to shoot me on his way out of the courtroom. You raised something I think is very important. And that is the need to sometimes concede. And people don't concede as much as they should. That's true in politics. It's true in business negotiations. And it's true in, in the law. You know, you get these people, they come in and they don't want to give up on any point at all. And one thing you're taught as a prosecutor, at least I was, and I think it's a good training, that if there's something that is not in your favor, concede it and say why it's not important, but you earn credibility that way and you earn trust that way. I see a lot of lawyers, unlike you, who will never give on any point and they think that's what fighting is. That's what losing is often. I, I agree. And you have clients who refuse to let you stipulate sometimes because they want to fight on everything. And in the cases where I've stipulated, when the stipulation is read, I've stood up in front of juries with the stipulation and said, they didn't prove this. I agreed. What's the biggest mistake people make when they're arguing to a jury? I think not having eye contact with the jurors they're trying to influence. I think it's a mistake that they uh, sometimes talk down to people. I think they sometimes talk over people's heads. You know, I'm a person who law firms come to on occasion, not criminal defense lawyers. I've tried cases for law firms who say, this is such a complicated case, we need to make it jury friendly. I've been taught and I've learned and I believe that every case has a heart. And you need to find the heart and you need to either expose it or cover it up, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. And I, I really think that sometimes making a case jury-friendly when the other side isn't, gets the jury to rely on you. They get to see you as the honest broker. They see to you and the judge as the person who's not trying to confuse and obfuscate and that you're the person who's going to enlighten right. them. Well, that's exactly the, the, the direction we give to prosecutors, that you have to be the reliable one. That's why you concede when the point is worth conceding. That's why you don't overstate. That's why you don't exaggerate. That's why you don't get emotional, because you have to be the definitive voice of truth in the courtroom. Well, I'll tell you one thing prosecutors don't get a lot of experience in, and that is cross-examinations. You know, because very few defendants take the witness stand, and very few witnesses are called that are substantive, so you don't develop cross-examination skills. Developing cross-examination skills makes you a better trial lawyer. Uh, developing direct examination skills over and over and over again, sometimes you sound boring. Sometimes there's no personality. When I was a prosecutor, I think I was an interesting prosecutor. Um, I tried to tell a very emotional, a story. interesting a story. story. Right. Made it into a story. Look, the best prosecutors also understand that every case has a, has a heart, and it's not just about if you want to win at the trial, prevail, and get the conviction at the trial – that you have to make the case about something. And most opening statements out of my office began with a simple declarative sentence. Not all, but most. This is a case about X. Right. This is a case about greed. This is a case about corruption of power. This is a case about, you know, you name it. Because even though you don't have to prove what the case is about, and they understand the story that's being told, it is not necessary to prove motive. 
for most crimes. You know, you did the thing, you shot the guy, you had the intent to shoot the guy. That could be homicide. But motive matters to normal people who are Correct. curious about human behavior and conduct. And before they're going to decide to find someone guilty, they want to understand why, even if the law doesn't require you to prove it. You know, when I grew up in this profession and people were telling me when I started as a defense lawyer, don't give an opening statement because you're not going to know what the evidence is and you might say something that you're not going to be able to prove. And I, you know, was mentored a little bit by Harold Price Farringer, who's no longer alive. He was a very fine lawyer. And he said to me, he says, Ben, you know, studies have shown that, you know, after opening statements, I mean, jurors are pretty much leaning in one way or the other. And if you're not giving an opening statement, they got to be leaning in the way of a prosecutor and you've got to play catch up the rest of of the day. And they probably also think that you you don't got nothing. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. So I've been able to craft opening statements that I think are interesting, they're creative, and they intrigue a jury. Even if what you're just telling them, you know, pay attention, or even if what you say is, look, this witness is going to testify. I'm asking you when they testify, don't just listen, watch them. Feel that witness in the courtroom. I mean, I had a jury almost afraid. You could see them move away from Peter Savino in the Windows, in the Windows trial, was on the stand for nine days. I had him for three days, and he had everything taped. But there was one vignette when the jury just basically turned away, and I knew it would happen. I said, Mr. Savino, you killed three people, yes, and you told us on the wreck that you murdered those people, yes, and you didn't tell us that you buried them under your desk in your office. He said, so? I said, so? You worked in that office every day for four years, then you had Louis de Nome and Charlie Principato and uh, rotting away under your desk, and that didn't bother you? He said, no, why? And jurors moved away, further away from the witness. And you could physically see it was like a wave. And just think, oh my God, what a disgusting you. They didn't care that he had killed them. They had buried them in his office and then sat on them for three years. It was just some, such a stunning uh, moment. It really was. Well, okay. <laughs> so Ben, I've only invited you to have a conversation with me twice in some public way. Once, a few years ago, I invited you to come speak to my office, and you were gracious enough to do so. And I wanted you to speak to the prosecutors in my office to give the perspective of the defense side. Because you know we often have people who come in who say what they expect to hear. And so I thank you for doing that. And the second time I invited you to do something publicly is this podcast. My pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. And to be honest with you, this is an important discussion for me because most people don't have a clue what I do all day. They really don't. They think they do, but they don't. Well, now they know more. Now they know more. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Benjamin Braffman. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned@cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks 
to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.